Hey, everybody, you're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, leaders, all kinds of people about their pluck ups, their mistakes, and their wrong turns, and their less than glamorous seasons, and their behind the highlight reel journey. We talk about how they plucked up, but probably more importantly, how they continued to move on and keep building a beautiful life of purpose and passion and impact. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. All right, you know this by now. What I love most about this show is getting to meet people from all kinds of backgrounds and experiences and always after just like an hour with these people. I take so much away from these conversations and this week's guest, Nona Jones, is one of these people that I just felt so truly inspired and encouraged by. So Nona is an incredibly accomplished leader in this kind of intersection world of faith and technology. She was appointed to her first executive role at 23 years old with a Fortune 100 company. She is an author. She's a speaker. She's an entrepreneur who has worked with and alongside companies like Facebook, and she's partnered with some of the world's most influential faith leaders. So in this episode, you're going to hear about Nona's professional and personal pluckups. She's also so, so generous in sharing with us about just a really, really difficult and traumatic childhood. It does involve sexual abuse and some suicide attempts. And so I do want to just warn our listeners in our community who might be sensitive towards that, that that is some hard topics and conversations that we're going to cover. We're also going to go really deep into the topic of humility, which I love and which I think is just such an important and interesting and beloved conversation for me, how we hold these things together. Um, Humility and confidence and moving forward boldly and recognizing our place in the world. And Nona shares her story on why she considers herself, quote, a statistically improbable product of grace. I think a lot of you are going to be really blessed and encouraged by this episode. So let's get going, shall we? Nona, thank you so much for joining us here on the Plucking Up podcast. I am so delighted to have you and so excited to dive in a little bit more and hear the behind the scenes of the Nona Jones story. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to be here and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. That introduction sounded much more like investigative journalism. Right? <laughs> um, I was I was joking, y'all, with Nona. I am actually right now filming in my neighbor's kid's bedroom. And so it would go something like this. Reporting live from the scenes of my neighbor's child's bedroom because... <laughs> My house is an absolute <laughs> chaos zone right now, and I've escaped. So these are the weird times. We're all making do. Yep, we do <laughs> what, what we got to do to get where we got to go. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, Nona, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work and your leadership, can you give us just like two sentences on who Nona Jones is today? So Nona Jones is a statistically improbable product of grace. Mm. Um, I am very, very blessed to uh, do a job that I love. And at the same time, as we talk more about my story, 
all the statistical probabilities pointed to me not being able to do that. Mm. So I'm going to leave it there. Okay, dot, dot, dot. That was so good. So let's get into it. So tell us a little bit about the early days of Nona Jones, as far back as you're willing to take us. Tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up and maybe if you can, some of the earliest inklings, if they existed, for some people they don't, the kind of earliest inklings of who you were, who you were created to be, and maybe eventually where you might go. Yeah. Well, so this is where the improbable part of my story uh, lives. So I was born to a mother who didn't want to have children. Mm -hmm. Um, She and my father had actually been married for 13 years when she found out she was pregnant with me. And I think the reason she didn't want to have children is she grew up in a very um, impoverished home. Her Mm -hmm. father was very abusive to her mother and there was like 12 children. And so I think she thought that, you know, it was having children that made her mother stay. Mm -hmm. So she thought children were a burden. And so, you know, she gets pregnant with me. She was not happy. My father was. And then halfway through her pregnancy, my father got diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer. Oh my gosh. uh, Which is, of course, just adding insult to injury in her opinion. And he fought very hard against that diagnosis. He ended up living until about two months shy of my second birthday. And then he passed. And shortly after that, my mother became involved with um, a string of men, just different boyfriends that came in and out of her life and in and out of my life. And when I was about five, um, one of her boyfriends moved in and I didn't like him pretty early on. Mm. I always tell parents, I have two boys. If your child does not like someone, like don't force Mm. them to try to have a relationship with that person. But my mom did. And so um, shortly after he moved in, she had to go back to New Jersey. We had moved away to go to a funeral and she left me in his care. And, um, the very first night she was gone, he sexually assaulted me. Um, and I remember he said to her, well, he said to me, you better not tell your mother because she doesn't want you. She never wanted you. And, you know, just really planted these Mm. seeds in my mind that I was uh, not wanted and I was disposable. And to make that situation even worse, um, I didn't say anything for a couple of years. He was repeatedly abusive, oh. but I finally worked up the courage to say something. And I was about seven and uh, my mom had him arrested and I thought everything was over. But on the day of his release from jail, she took me with her to pick him up and brought him back home where he proceeded to continue abusing me. And I think that process really solidified within me this idea that I was not wanted, that I was not valued, and that he was more important. And so I say all that because, you know, at a young age, I got labeled as a problem child. I was acting out in school. I was told I had a learning disability. I had all these labels placed on me. Mm. And so when people, you know, walk into my life now and they see, yo, you're, you know, a leader at Facebook and, you know, you have companies and you're speaking all over the world and they're just like, oh, that's so great. That's why I say I'm a statistically improbable product of grace. I mean, Mm -hmm. I should not be where I am and yet I am a product of God's grace and faithfulness. And so that's my story, you know, I mean, there's a whole lot of intricacies in there, but suffice it to say, I am mindful every day that it could have gone a whole different way. Yeah. It just feels like you've been given with this story, this like impossible line Mm -hmm. to walk between like acknowledging just the sheer grace and provision and statistical unlikelihood of who you are. Also acknowledging 
it sounds like your posture is one of like, I don't know why, mm-hmm. you know, that it's like, I can't point to, well, here's the 10 things I did to overcome exactly. a childhood of immense trauma yeah. and abuse. If only you do that, you can find yourself in this Wait. successful place too. But also probably I would imagine that your story would give others either with a similar background or maybe they have a child who's had a traumatic experience, an immense amount of hope mm-hmm. that it is possible Ooh, that feels like a, a complex thing to hold all of that together. How do you navigate that? What does that look like? Well, I'll tell you um, what it has created within me character wise is just deep humility. You know, mm. I, I am not one to take credit for the good that happens in my life. Mm. Um, you know, I do the best that I can. And yet I recognize that there are so many forces beyond me that have directed me to this moment. And so, you know, I'm not one to say, oh, look at how great I am and look at all that I've done. And because the truth is, you know, there are many people who are smarter than me. There are people who frankly grew up in better situations than I did who overdosed on drugs or are in jail. And so I really see myself as a product of grace. And I talk to people a lot who say things like, just to give an example, oh, well, you know, those people over there just need to work harder. And if they Mm -hmm. worked harder, they would be successful. Mm -hmm. And I flip that on its head. And I say, well, technically I shouldn't be successful. (laughs) Like technically the way statistics show I should have multiple children from multiple fathers. I should have been locked up in jail. I probably should be dead by now. Statistically, I should have all those labels. And yet I don't. And so I try to maintain just a a humble mindset. And that really drives the way that I spend my time and my energy and my compassion to other people who didn't end up like this. Like, okay, I could have been you. And so let me not judge you and ostracize you, let me try to find a way to help you see that you have just as much potential, if not more than I did. Yeah. Try to be that that hope for them. And my gosh, if anybody can share that message, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, so someone can fact check me on this. I would guess that to experience abuse from someone in your home that is supposed to be a figure of love and trust at such an early age I feel like has to be one of the most damaging traumatic things that could ever happen to a child. And so to hear that message from somebody that has had that experience, I imagine brings a lot of, yeah, hope and possibility and authenticity that it's like, you're not saying it was fine. Just like, you know, brush yourself up, you know, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And there are some who say that, like they say, well, look, if I can do it, you can do it too. And you're Mm -hmm. just being lazy and you just stop being a victim and all of that. And I just look at it like, you know what? Everybody responds to trauma differently. Yeah. You know, some people respond to trauma by you know, looking for an opportunity to thrive and they look for an opportunity to forgive. Others respond to trauma with anger and hostility and bitterness. And frankly, when you have that type of stuff happen to you, like who could blame you for being angry? And so I try to approach it that way. It's like, you know what? Again, I'm a statistically improbable product of grace. I have no place to judge anybody else. So all I'm going to try to do is just help other people with whatever I have. 
So tell me about when this worldview that feels very much so a part of who you are, how you live out your vocation, your calling in the world, this idea that you are a statistically improbable product of grace, this sense of humility of not taking credit for your success. How did that worldview form? Can you take us on that part of the journey? Yeah. So um, I, interestingly enough, I did not grow up in like a a Christian home or Mm. a faith-filled home at all. And because of that, I actually tried to end my life at the ages of nine and 11. Like I I tried to take my life because I figured, well, death couldn't possibly be any worse than Mm. what I was feeling in life. And so I tried unsuccessfully, but shortly after my second suicide attempt in the sixth grade, a classmate invited me to go to church with her. I didn't know what it was. I thought we were going to go to her house and play games. Uh, but we went to this church thing. And I remember when we got out of the car, like I noticed there were all these families like holding hands, walking in the building. And when I walked in, there were people who I didn't know who immediately loved me and welcomed mm-hmm. me. And they were so glad to see me. And it was such a juxtaposition mm-hmm. to the life I had been living where at home, I mean, my mother's boyfriend was sexually abusive. My mother was emotionally and physically and verbally abusive. Uh, teachers had written me off. They said all types of things about me. And then here these people were like, oh my gosh, mm. you're so beautiful. We're so glad to have you. And I was like, what is this? And then the very first sermon I ever heard, the pastor that day said, uh, God is a father to the fatherless. Mm. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, well, what is God? Like, what is that? Who is God? Because I had wanted my father. I had always felt like if my father had lived, mm. none of that stuff would have happened. And so it really became that consciousness, that awareness, because he went on to say uh, that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. And, you know, before we were formed in our mother's womb that, you know, God knew us. And I was like, what is all of this? Mm. And so that began to create an awareness in me that, wait a minute, I wasn't a mistake. I had been told I was a mistake. I had been told I wasn't wanted. It's like, oh, I wasn't a mistake, that I had purpose, that I had potential and that existed completely outside of me. No matter what I did, uh, no matter what I didn't do, I was created on purpose. And so that is really what created within me the humility to say, wow, okay, no matter how horrible situations may be, no matter how little I may think of myself, I have a creator who thinks literally the world of me. And that changed that changed my perception of, of my value and my worth and my identity. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what happened. I got on a, a trajectory of understanding that wasn't an accident. And so that's been my that's really been my life's calling. Even when I you know speak in corporate settings, I may not speak in a like overtly religious manner, but I always try to remind people that no matter what happened to you, you are not the worst that's ever happened to you mm-hmm. because you were created on purpose for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's how I try to live my life. my instinct would be that like, oh, the last thing known as a 12-year-old needs is humility, right? Because she's been beaten down since the day she came into the world. She's been told these lies about not being good enough, not being wanted, not being desired. And I th- I do think that as a culture, our answer to that is like um, self-confidence, right? Yeah. Our answer to that is like to combat that with a sense of like, no, you are all of these things. And while yeah. I don't think that that isn't true, There is something really counterintuitive and kind of mystical about this concept of this sense of your place and your purpose in this story that is so much bigger and your value that lies 
not in your actions, not what you've done, not how good you are, not what you've achieved, not how smart you are, you know, because a lot of our self-talk, right, is like, no, you're smarter than you think you are and you're prettier than you think you are and you're stronger than you think you are. And it does lead me oftentimes to think about like, but what if I'm not? Exactly. (laughs) Or what about the person who isn't? And are they valuable? Let's take smart for an example. Like Mm -hmm. there are people in the world who are not smart. They are not intelligent. And that's just like a fact. That's how we're all created with these, you know, different abilities and levels of ability. And so it's like, if that's our message of like, no, no, you're more than you think you are. Does that inherently kind of chip away at our like, and if you're not, we're so afraid of saying that because that means you're not valuable. You're not beloved. You're not worthy of good things and of dignity and respect. That's why humility is so much more powerful than confidence. And, and it's gonna, it sounds weird, but it's true. Because see, confidence is based on external performance. Hmm. It's based on external comparison. Like I'm confident because when I look over the fence, I see that somebody else isn't as beautiful or isn't as smart or isn't mm-hmm. as successful. So I'm confident because of myself as compared to them. Yeah. Humility, however, many people think humility is about thinking lowly of yourself. That's not humility at all. Humility is saying, I am everything that I need to be at this moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm super excited for others mm-hmm. who are what they need to be. Yeah. But I don't have to use them as the rubric yes. for myself. Yes. Humility. Y'all can't see me over here. My neck hurts a little bit because I'm just like, (laughs) yes, Nona, yes. Um, That it is like when we finally stop looking at one another as benchmarks, as like, how do I compare to you? I do believe that allows us to celebrate and to mourn with and to walk alongside people in a totally different way. Because it's like your success does not diminish mine because you're over here doing your thing and you need this and this and this. And I'm over here and I don't need a bit of that because that's not my story. So I can celebrate that you have all of that and I am not gifted in that area well, or vice versa. I wrote about this in, so I, I released my memoir earlier this year. It's called Success from the Inside Out. And there's there's a, a, a segment in that book that literally talks about this exact concept. And one of the things I always try to get people to understand is you are the only you that ever was and ever will be. Like there will never be another you. I don't care if somebody looks like you. I don't care if they talk like you, have the same name as you. There will never be another you. So how shameful would it be to be born an original and die a duplicate? Mm, That's good. There was a period, and I talk about it in the book, where I wasn't happy. Mm. I was successful on the outside. Mm -hmm. I wasn't happy. I had awards. I had recognitions. I had accolades. At a very young age. Yeah, at a young age, yeah. I didn't have peace. And the reason for that is I was trying to accumulate stuff mm. under the assumption that if I just get more stuff, I'll be happy. But there's nothing you can accumulate around you that will fill the deficit within you. Like that's internal. Yeah. So I think it's it's so important to learn contentment. Mm. Whether I get another, if I lose 10 more, I listen, I want to lose like 15 more pounds. <laughs> if I don't though, I'm not going to say, oh my gosh, look how horrible I am. Yeah. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to try to be as healthy as I possibly can be. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the best we can do. When did that shift happen for mm. you? Yeah, that's funny. I um, So I used to work in politics and I remember at one point I was considered successful enough to be in the circles of people at the White House. And so I ended up being at the White House probably like every other week for mm. one reason or another. Wow. And I remember I was at a reception one night and the president was there and the first lady was there and it was all these super successful people. 
And I remember looking around the room and thinking, wow, like I should feel like I've arrived. Like I should be mm-hmm. super excited and like, mm-hmm. wow, I'm here. But I didn't feel that way. I mm-hmm. felt like just empty. I was like, is this it? Like, mm-hmm. is this is what making it feels like. And I think once I recognized that one, that wasn't it because there was another position I could get. There was another title I could get. There was another award I can get. I realized that on the other side of more is just more. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's no period. There are only commas. Mm-hmm. And I think I woke up in that moment because I was like, Nona, you're literally striving after the wind, but you're not, you're not happy. Like people are like, wow, look at all you've done. And you're like, yeah, but there's so much more I need to do. <laughs> it never ends. Yeah. So I think that was the recognition where mm-hmm. I was like, there's got to be more to life than this. I think a lot of times people, there's like this fear that if you have that recognition, then you're going to stop striving and then you're going to lead a life that's like kind of complacent and like, well, I'm not going to go for big stuff or I'm not going to do the big thing because if it doesn't matter and none of it's going to make me happy anyway, there's just like this fear that we have to keep striving for more or else we just like stop and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And I just truly believe that it's the opposite, that it's like once we actually get understand that like we are worthy we are valuable no matter what no matter how successful we are no matter how accomplished we are no matter what they say or what they think that we actually some of us I think end up running harder because now we're running out of a sense of overflow of like yes. I know that and I want to give that to other people and we can build awesome stuff together and we yeah. can actually co-create and we can make the world better than it is and the, on the outside it might look the same actually But the motivation is so different. One is like a striving, a grasping. I have to get to the next place. I have to get the next accomplishment. And the other is almost like you're being pushed, you know, where it's like you have this energy and this momentum of just like this sense of like, if I want other people to believe they are so deeply valuable and they are so worthy and we just get to do this together. And why would I not spend all of my time and energy creating this world? So I'm going to put this in like super stark terms because what you just described is the way that I try to get people to think about it. Hmm. If you spend your entire life racking up awards and accomplishments and accolades and, you know, getting the positions and the the titles and the salaries and all that, what you will have done is you will have created an awesome obituary, Hmm. something that people are going to be like, wow, what a great person. And all those things are going to be buried with you. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, it is what it is. But if you begin to be other focused, Mm -hmm. what you do is you create a legacy, which will always outlive you. The Mm -hmm. things that you do for other people, the things, I mean, I got to tell you, I get no more joy than when I see someone in need and I can meet that need. Hmm. And I'll just give you concrete. So it, it could be the most random thing. Like I remember my husband and I, we were driving down the street in another town a couple of weeks ago. And there was a, a gentleman and he was working outside of a pawn shop. He had like a grill and he was like selling barbecue sandwiches. Right. But it was raining. I mean, like, like drenching rain. And I saw him as we were driving by and I told my husband, I said, honey, I said, circle back. And so we went to the bank, we took out some money and we gave, we, we probably gave him enough for what he makes in a week. Like we were just like, just be a blessing. Yeah. That man broke down crying, like broke down crying was speechless. Mm-hmm. He was in the right. Like, and there's, there's no award. There's no magazine article. There's no. nothing 
that can compare to the feeling of knowing that we just changed the entire trajectory of this man's day, potentially his week, potentially his family. Like that is a legacy work. And that's where I'm focusing my life. It's like, all right, how do I support people who just need to be lifted to the next level? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. So you graduated from high school. Did you go on to university? Yes. I went to the University of Florida. Okay. Um, I'm the Gators. Okay. And what <laughs> so, did yeah. you study there? When you arrived at college, what was your like vision for the Nona Jones life and how college was going to play a part of that? How funny of a question. I was originally a microbiology and cell science major. I was okay. planning to go to medical school and become a pediatric oncologist. Oh, wow. Um, loved science and math and biology and all that. And I was doing really, really well. I was two years in, literally like 4.0 GPA. I was actually about to go to medical school a year early, um, which was awesome. Wow. But I did a research project. Um, I think this was between my sophomore and junior year with the National Institutes of Health. And the physician who was sponsoring the project asked me a simple question. He was like, well, why do you want to be a doctor? And I looked at him with like these bright eyes and bushy tail. And I was like, because I want to help people. I want to give them hope. And I want to just save the world. And he was like, that's not what we do. He was like, it's about the science. He was like, we don't exist to give people hope. We exist to fix problems. And I was like, what? So that I completely changed my major. Listen, I changed my major from microbiology and cell science. Mind you, I was taking like organic chemistry, physics, calculus, like five. I changed it to journalism (laughs) and decided, well, maybe I'll just be a news anchor. (laughs) That was my my pivot. Um, But yeah. That is so funny. I'm laughing so hard because I wanted to be a doctor when I was little and I actually was not good at math and science. And it was, I say it with all the love in the world for myself, but I was just like, there were things I was really good at. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's not that interesting though. And I was like, I want to be a doctor. I want I wanted to be an OBGYN. I wanted to oh. bring babies into the world. And, and the further on I got in academia, I was like, one of these things comes very easy to me. And the other <laughs> is very challenging. Like I am just swimming upstream over here. And then I ended up going on to study journalism. So yeah. I'm laughing that we kind of had a little bit of a flip-flop situation. Oh man. So did you, that's so hilarious. you switched your major your mid no towards the end of college uh yeah it was literally my third year like okay wow (laughs) in the third year that's all I mean I feel like there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this that are in that age bracket that are in the like angsty I'm in college I don't know what I'm doing and so if you're there and you're like considering a massive switch know that you're not alone yeah Nona Jones is right there right alongside you it happens I did it and I think that that's a really wise um you know, I think this this kind of uh, tension between the how, the what, and the why, right, is actually that's really important work for us to do as we think about our lives and our vocations is like the why might be a little bit different than the how or the what. And it sounds like you could do the how and the what, like you were capable of it. But then when it came down to like, does this actually for me, is it going to tap into that core reason for being this is the why I want to pursue that thing having this moment where you're like oh those things actually might not line up and it sounds like you let go of the how and the what in favor of pursuing something that felt more in line with your why would that oh, is yeah. that accurate yeah no that's absolutely right as a matter of fact um even like kind of fast forwarding to today I'm in a situation where 
I'm about to wind down. I also, in addition to what I do at Facebook and writing books and stuff, I also have a couple companies and one of them in particular is very successful, but I'm actually about to shut it down at the end of this year. Mm. And the reason for that is I have to create capacity for something else that I am deeply passionate about and that I know I'm called to. Yeah. That is not going to pay me any money, but it's going to make an incredible impact in the world. And so mm. I'm like, are we sure I have to shut this thing down? Yeah. <laughs> My husband was like, uh, is there a way you'd like somebody else could run it? <laughs> and I was like, no, we're gonna have to shut it down. Um, cause you're right. Like the, the why matters. I mean, who yeah. wants to get to the end of your life? Like nobody gets to the end of their life and they're on their deathbed and they're like, Oh, if only I would have just taken that other client, man, that would have been so amazing. My mm-hmm. life would have been so much better. Yeah. We don't think about that. We think about like purpose questions. Yeah. Like, man, I wish I would have done this instead. So you graduated from college. You were successful at a really young age. You started working in the private sector. You started working in politics and nonprofits. You eventually obviously made your way to where you are now, which is leading faith-based initiatives and partnerships at Facebook. You've spoken all over the world on some of the biggest stages in the entire world. You've written books. The list goes on and on and on of kind of the the Nona Jones accomplishment. I've said your full name like 19 times in this podcast. I just really <laughs> like saying it. <laughs> Apparently, it sounds really good. I just appreciate people for saying Nona and not Nora. That's why my social handle is Nona, not Nora. Because I get called Nora oh. Jones oh, no. all the time. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> um, so tell us about. We know. We know enough to know that that's the highlight reel. It's all yeah. true. It's all legit. But that the highlight reel, although is you know hopefully true, is not the it's yeah. not the whole story. Yeah. So we would love, especially I'm really interested in hearing from you since you did achieve such success at such an early age. Is there a moment in that journey, a mistake, a wrong turn, a really challenging season of rejection, a time you were really embarrassed or felt a lot of shame? Something that, you know, on your Wikipedia page, it happens to not mention this thing, you know, in your in your list of accomplishments. Um, and would you be willing to dive into that a little bit and tell us about oh, that time? Yeah. Oh, man. First of all, there's so many. So, like, my mind is, like, racing with examples. Um, I'll actually, I'll give you two. I'll give you a professional one and I'll give you a personal one. So, okay. on the professional side, um, yes, I was on a very steady trajectory of success, very early age. And because I was so focused on, you know, more and bigger, I got into a situation to where I was leading a team. And I remember when I started, there was this one particular person on the team because I inherited the team and then I built, built it out. But there was one person on the team. And I remember early on looking at her and being like, wow, she has a lot of potential. She's like amazing. And I noticed her but I never really like invested in her and never really mm. spent time with her because I was so focused on me mm. making a name for myself. As a matter of fact, the team I was leading, it was cross-functional, but one of the functions was uh, government affairs. And she was uh, one of the state government affairs directors. And then I was building out a federal strategy, which was completely new. And so I remember as I started to build out the federal strategy in my mind, I was like, I really should get her involved with this. And she even asked, she was like, Oh, can I be a part of that? I'd love to help. But I was so insecure hmm. that I didn't allow her to be a part of it because I wanted to make sure that I got the credit. Like I wanted to make sure that I built this new thing and it was all look at what Nona did. So it was very successful. We got like millions of dollars from the government, which was awesome. But 
after the smoke cleared, she resigned. Hmm. And of course I was like, what? Because she was someone who was so talented that I had actually envisioned her like being my successor. Like I was like, I can see you doing this. But when she was heading out, she told me, she was like, you know, you basically checked out. She was like, I didn't feel supported. As a matter of fact, you made me feel diminished in many ways. Mm. And she was absolutely right. And it was heartbreaking to hear that, but it was also so necessary because that was the moment when I had to be honest. Because, you know, we can all like humble brag and pretend to be so like, oh, I just love the world and the people in the world. But at the end of the day, I had to be honest and be like, nope, I've made this about me. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a super humbling, humbling moment. And then that was on the professional side and right around the same time. Well, can I, can I ask you some questions about that? Yeah. So you're like sitting in the meeting where she's telling you this, or you're reading the review yeah. or however that information came yeah, to you. Yeah, she told me. So it was she nice told and you, live. Face just to face. like face to face. Yep. What was your like physiological reaction to that? Like sitting across from someone being like, not only did you not support me, but I felt actively disregarded, diminished. Tell us about what you felt in that moment. So one of the, I will say one of the things that I've learned to do, um, and I've always kind of done this naturally, is I know how to present neutral. Like I know how to. Wow. Can you uh, give me a masterclass on that, please? (laughs) (laughs) I've had, listen, I've been in some really tense situations where I've had people tell me like after the fact, I'm just so impressed with how you handled that. Like people literally like shouting and all this stuff. And I'm just kind of like, okay, yeah, I'm so sorry. You feel that way. Right in my mind, I'm like, who do you think you're talking to? But outside, I'm just like, got it. So I was neutral. I was definitely neutral. We have the exact opposite tendencies because my (laughs) husband's like, I'm thinking about getting tied tonight. And then the look on my face says something to the effect of like, he just admitted he did some war crimes. And he's like, wow, you really don't want tie? And I'm like, oh, I'm just slightly preferring Chinese over (laughs) Slight preference or something other than that. (laughs) All Um, right. Sorry. Go ahead. It's something I've learned. And it's funny because I think the reason why I've learned to be kind of neutral is because of my background. I have always had a, a sensitivity to criticism. Yeah. It's, it's always been one of those things that's like super triggering for me, mm. even if it's benign. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, this report was amazing. Here's something you can do to make it even better. I would like be super crushed. So I learned how to be neutral, but I will tell you on the inside that she was talking to me on the inside, I was like, what are you saying? This is crazy. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's what was happening in my mind. But my face was super welcoming, super neutral. <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> that's, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I was I was you on the inside. So you're <laughs> there you go. But your first instinct is to deny or make it in your head, the way to rationalize it to not have to deal with that really hard feedback was like, you're off. You're misreading the situation. That didn't happen. You know, that so that that didn't happen. Um what I the way I responded, because I did care about her, like I really yeah. did, is yeah. I I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm just now learning this because I would have loved to talk with you through this. You know, I think the world of you, I truly am sorry that I, I showed up that way for you. That was not my intention. Yeah. And the way I tend to act in, the, in situations like that is I tend to be honest. Like I'll always try to be diplomatic, mm-hmm. but I tend to be honest. Now, if I meant to show up that way, I'll probably be like, you know, yeah, this just isn't working out. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't mean that. And so I yeah. was able to show up in that other way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. And I think especially your ability to recognize how your own insecurity played into that. Because so often, I mean, I think we have this view. It's so interesting. We have this view of others, right? That they're going about in the world and they're acting in ways because they're selfish yep. and because they don't care about other people and because this and that. And so often it's like, oh, they're acting this way because like they're barely holding it together. They're yep. really insecure. They're afraid of losing their job. And like accountability is so important. And it's not that you dismiss it if that's the cause behind it by any means or allow it. But it really does change your posture on the world when you think about like, oh, actually, like the most competent people are the ones that are the quickest to reach down and to lend a hand and to support because they're not threatened because yes. they don't, you know, because they deeply believe that there's enough for everybody. And when we act out of that scarcity mentality that I'm not good enough at my core and I don't have time for you or I need to step on you to get to that like place. But at the end of the day, like that's brokenness, that's insecurity, like that's you not believing fully that you were created on purpose and for a purpose. And I know when I can approach people that I've been hurt by with that assumption that it's like, I think you probably weren't out to get me. I think you're yeah. probably dealing with your own things. Now, here's regardless of the intention, here's the impact that that had on me. And we can honestly talk about that. But so much of my self-work I found is in not writing the story for somebody else of why they did the thing of like, here's here's how I perceived it. Here's the impact that it had on me. But I'm not going to tell you why you did it, what your motivation was or what your intent was, because only you can know that. So let's like start from that space. Well, it's this it's the reality that we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their behavior. Right. Totally. So we're yep. just like, I don't know what you were thinking, but this is what happened. And and I think we do have to give the grace that we would want others to give to us. I mean, how many times have we been misunderstood? Right. How many times has somebody felt hurt by what we did and we weren't intending it? So yeah, it's, it's about extending the grace to others that we would want them to extend to us. And it's hard because we always, like we'd see ourselves through this like, you know, rose colored glasses where we're like, we would never hurt anybody, but it's about the impact. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like in the midst of this professional pluck up, there was some stuff going on in your personal life as well. Yes. So <laughs> uh, around this time, my youngest son, who is now, he's now 10, he's almost 11, he was probably five. So this was, he was like right in kindergarten. And, um, I remember <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm, I'm just, this is all flooding back, but, uh, I remember his teacher called me and was like, we need to have a parent teacher conference whenever you're available. But I was traveling so much then mm -hmm. that I literally was like, Hey, I don't think I can meet for like three weeks. <laughs> and she was like, okay, well, whenever you can meet, we need to meet. And so when she said it that way, I was like, okay, something's really wrong. So I asked my assistant to just like rearrange some stuff and uh, decided to meet with her. And I kind of knew what it was because there were some notes that came home about my son being disruptive and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, he's, his behavior is off the charts. Let's see what's going on. I walk into this meeting and I'm thinking that we're just going to talk about my son's behavior being disruptive and I'm going to be so apologetic. And she says to me, Ms. Jones, I just wanted to tell you that your son has been saying how much he misses you. Mm. I, that felt like, I can't, I can't, you, you can imagine because you're a mom, but I'm like, yeah, it was so painful. And I, and it, I wasn't prepared for it. Like I just yeah. thought I was going to come apologize about his behavior, try to figure this out. And then I come to find out that it's because of me. And I went home and I talked to him about it. And 
I just asked him, I was like, you know, you know, mommy loves you. Right. And my little boy was like, no. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't have a heart at this point. My heart has stopped no, beating. Like yeah. he took the knife and stabbed it. I'm just like, ah. but you know, I realized in that moment, I was like, I have been prioritizing everyone and everything else hmm. over the one who I prayed for. I mean, I was diagnosed with infertility. I was not supposed wow. to be able to have children, but we got pregnant with him miraculously and his brother. And yet I had allowed all this other stuff to take mm. precedent over him. And so it became like a, just a massive reset moment hmm. to realize that I was choosing things that didn't matter. I mean, I was literally, I would be on planes going to meetings that I wasn't even presenting at. I didn't, I didn't yeah. need to be there. Like, yeah. but I was asked to go. So I would go. And I got to the point where I was like, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going anywhere unless I absolutely have to be there because yeah. I need to be with my, my son. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was a huge pluck up, um, that we worked through, but it's something I have to continue to actively balance. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I have a four-year-old, so I'm in a similar stage as you were during that season of parenting. And so I feel that on like a gut spiritual level of like what it would be like to sit across the table from another adult and hear that, like them relaying the words of your child, how painful that must have been and how easy it would have been to one either act out of shame and try to defend yourself, right? Or to spiral into shame of like, I'm the worst mom ever and I've I have screwed up my kid for forever and we're not and I'm gonna quit my job and I'm gonna stay home and we're we're gonna homestead and I'm gonna bake and I'm gonna bake all your bread, (laughs) you know, and like and just totally out of because sometimes I can operate in such extremes that when I'm panicking, when I'm acting in fear, I can just swing so far to the other side of the pendulum, which that's not wisdom either. That's not wisdom, that's not discernment, (laughs) that's not truth, right? Of And I think it's so awesome how in that moment, instead of spiraling into shame, like just with wisdom and discernment, evaluating like, oh, actually, I don't need to rethink the entire calling that I have on my life. I don't have to up and quit my job. I don't have to like say nothing else matters. But there could be some real value Mm -hmm. in prioritizing and in saying, can I live out? what I feel called to, the role that I feel like God has me in and the thing that I'm supposed to bring into the world, can I do that in a way that also allows me to be deeply faithful to this calling that I have here as a mother and to build a family? Because that's also an act of co-creating, right? Yeah. And it was really just about um, asking those questions. I think that's that's the whole point of it all is, is being intentional and making sure that everything we do um, aligns with what matters most to yeah. us in the end, there have been so many people who have died with regret. Mm. And I just like, I, I don't want to do that. I want to live every day in such a way that I, I know that the time that I spent was impactful, but I also made sure that it was related to my priorities. So, yeah, that I think is the absolute key is like, are we spending our lives in a way that we can look at the blocks of 
time on our calendar and say, like, this is a manifestation of this priority. Like, I deeply have this value. And this is how it's manifesting in my life, in my schedule, in my calendar. And when we can say that, even when it's difficult and even when it's like, yes, of course, we wish that we had 50 hours in a day. The feeling of going to bed that night being like, that was hard. I was stretched. You know, I do wish I could have had a little bit more margin during this season or that. But like, did it feel aligned? Yes. That is totally the difference of like, I have been in places in my career, same as you, where it's not that I'm more busy. It's that the things that I'm saying yes to, they are not a clear shot to my values and my priorities and my long-term strategic goal and vision. And that is when it becomes, I think, like soul crushing and soul sucking, you know, and I don't know about you or any other parents that are listening to this, but for me, parenting has been so clarifying. It's been really helpful in helping me ask that question because it's like, I leave my kids, I travel and I don't feel guilty about it right? because I'm like, this is who God made me to be. This is my calling in the world. Like I want to raise, I I have two sons as well. It's (laughs) like, I want to raise boys that see their mom go, that see them leave them with, by the way, their father who is remarkably capable and like the other probably more responsible parent and like see, you know, that that's, (laughs) that is potential as well. You know, it's like, I, I feel deeply called to that, but it, my like spidey senses for when I'm chasing something that I couldn't look my sons in the eye and say, this is why mommy's leaving because she believes deeply in this thing and she's going out to create it in the world. That to me feels so good. And like, it might be hard and I'm going to miss you and you're going to miss me, but we're doing this as a family and you're even a part of it. And the moment I didn't have this pre-kids, the moment that gets off and I say yes to something and I'm like, you know what? That was not the best use of my time, of my energy having kids in the equation and being like, how would I explain why you said yes to this to your Mm -hmm. four-year-old? It's like, "Mm, that's probably a good indicator that that was not your best yes. That's exactly right. And can I say, I laugh so often because when I travel, well, when back when we used to, you know, travel on planes, when that um, was a thing, people used to always ask me, because I would be gone like four or five days out of the week, meaning weeks. They would be like, who has your kids? And I'm just like, who has my kids? What? And then they're like, what happens to your kids during the day? I'm like, but I would always laugh. I would be like, you know, I have no idea. I just, I, I, I make sure the fridge is full and you know, I leave the keys, I leave the keys on the stove and they know if they need to go run to the store, how to do it. Uh, they are so resourceful. <laughs> it is so seven. true. Oh my gosh. You are speaking my <laughs> language because let me tell you, my husband, who I work full-time with my husband, so we are both full-time working parents. Uh-huh. I will tell you, when he is traveling and when he is on a plane, he has literally never in his life been asked, but what's happening to your kids right now? You know, and it's just what's like, to the kids? I'm so passionate about it because it's like, uh-huh. what a gift to be able to give our sons to be like, mommy's not afraid when I leave (laughs) because you're with the other half of who made you, you know? And like, just like that sense of like, I'm not just going to say, oh yeah, we're equal and daddy's just as capable as me. But then in all of my action show, like, I really hope everybody's still alive when I get home. It's just like, peace, you're in great hands. And I hope that you grow up. And if you choose to have kids and build a family, know that like, you can do this. Like you, you have it, it in you. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Nona, 
Thank you so much for joining us on the show. You are so full of wisdom and pluck and truly a lot of, um, you have a presence that is both um, this really beautiful combination of humility and power and like not shrinking away from who you are and what you have to offer the world, but that being in the context of you're a part of this bigger, beautiful story and you're just playing your role that you're called to play and to create in and that is a really 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 beautiful place to be and that is so evident in the work that you do and even just in your presence with us this hour well listen this has been like so so pleasurable and i hate to make other podcasters upset but i think this has been one of the best podcasts i've ever been part of so i've enjoyed it thank you for having me (laughs) thank you so much Jones. Come on. What a gift. I hope that you liked today's episode, but more than anything, as always, I hope that you're walking away feeling inspired and encouraged and a little bit less alone. If you like the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and subscribe, rate, and review the show. This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements, you can visit my website, lizbohannon.co, or follow me on Instagram at lizbohannon. I'd also love to hear from you over there and hear what you thought about this episode. And you can also follow my producers at Sincerely Human on Instagram and human underscore media on Twitter. All right, that's all you guys. We'll catch you again on the next episode. And until then, stay plucky. Thank you.